0: Well, thank you to the worship band. That was a great start this morning. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we do thank you uh, for uh, all the people in this church who do so many things to to get us going on a Sunday morning. So many volunteers. from Sunday school to the children's ministry to uh, just preparing the building to the ushers, uh, to the AV people. And I pray I haven't left anyone out. Uh, just so many people here who are doing so much to, to get this place ready so that we can worship you, Lord. And and we do come before you this morning uh, with hearts of worship, hearts uh, that are eager to, to praise your name, Lord. Uh, Lord, I confess I have no power in myself to make uh, these words Uh, do anything. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes it happen, Lord, and so we ask that the Holy Spirit come now. Lord, may the Holy Spirit do his work, and we trust, Lord, uh, that these words that uh, will come forth will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so continuing our study uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, what we've seen so far is we have seen the event of the, co- uh, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, and then we saw Peter's explanation of the event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and this week we'll talk about the effect of the coming of the Holy Spirit on this first century church. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit came, the first century church had been born, uh, and a church that started with 120 people added 3,000 uh, in a single day. Uh, we hold about 100 a hundred chairs in here. How would you like it if 3,000 people uh, showed up next week? Uh, what would we do with all these people? Wouldn't that be a nice problem to have? Uh, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can do that if the Holy Spirit so chooses. And, uh, uh, but but th- this first century church is now large. And, and what does a Holy Spirit-filled church, uh, filled with believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, do next? Uh, They they didn't know what to do. And so they they asked, what do we do next? And I I want to think about who these church members are. Uh, They're Jews, of course, right? These are first century Jews who have just been converted to uh, Christianity. And uh, so we asked the question, uh, were they religious? Well, yeah. I mean, there was nobody more religious than a first century Jew, right? They were religious to a fault. Uh, But Christianity is not about being religious, Uh, Being religious means following rules and regulations and following the law. Uh, Having the spirit means that you are free uh, to worship Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than strict adherence to rules and regulations. Do you think that that was easy for these Jews to understand? Uh, not at all, right? Uh, Paul spent his entire ministry uh, arguing with, the, with people that he called Judaizers, trying to show them that uh, Christ is the end of the law and that we, we, we follow by grace and truth and not by the letter of the law. Uh, so they had so much to learn, these Jews did, about Jesus' life uh, and his death and his resurrection and what it all meant and, and how we are to live as Christians now uh, that we have the Holy Spirit. And so when you want to be trained, uh, what do you do? You go find somebody with more knowledge than yourself, more experience than yourself, and you stick to them like glue, and you learn, learn, learn as best as you can. Uh, I was watching uh, on ESPN a a special that they ran recently called The Two Bills. I don't know if any of you saw this special, Uh, but it was a special about the relationship between New York Giants football head coach uh, Bill Parcells and his defensive coordinator, Bill Bel- uh, Belichick, who, of course, uh, as you know, went on to coach the New England Patriots uh, five Super Bowls later. Uh, he's a legend in his own right. Uh, but Belichick, he, he did not know how to be a head football coach, and he wanted to be a head football coach. And uh, what really struck me about the piece was that Parcells used to invite Belichick to meetings where personnel issues were discussed and salary cap issues were discussed and and injury issues were discussed. And and these are the things that you need to know to be a head coach. Uh, Belichick was a brilliant defensive coordinator by all accounts, uh, but he was focused just on the defense. He didn't know how to oversee the whole thing. And so he was very thankful to Parcells, who allowed him into those meetings and and taught him how to be uh, a head coach. And And he had much to learn. And so he stuck to parcels like glue and he learned, learned, learned. And that's what we see from this first century church. Uh, It was filled with people who were eager to learn. And the apostle's job was not an easy one. They have to take people who are steeped in the law and steeped in tradition, and try to change their mindset so that they would uh, follow a a Christian life of discipleship. Uh, He was trying to make Christian disciples out of them, and that's not easy to do. So what we see here when we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, is it's a little snapshot into what the early church looked like. And And Luke has scattered a bunch of these little snapshots of the early church throughout uh, the book of Acts, and and we'll see them as we go through. But this is probably the most detailed one, the most revealing one. Uh, What we're going to see in these verses is is, uh, Luke giving us an early glimpse, and it's a beautiful and wonderful glimpse into the early church. And it's a a model that we see in this early church that that most New Testament Bible teaching churches are trying to follow uh, even to this day. Uh, And so Luke tells us that this church was knowing, it was growing, and it was going. And that's what we'll see in these six verses. So I want to read these verses and then we'll dive into them. Uh, Look at verse 42 with me. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles'. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved." So the first thing we see here is that the first century church was knowing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, The word disciple means learner. So a disciple is a learner, and his task is to follow someone who knows more than he does and learn from that person. You know think about this. The, the, we're, we're not very long after the ascension. So uh, Peter and the apostles, they still had a whole lot to work out themselves. There was a still still a whole lot that they didn't understand, but they knew so much more than the people that they were going to teach. Uh, they knew about Jesus's life and death and resurrection because they had been there. They were witnesses to these things. and And Jesus told them in chapter one that they would be witnesses to these things. And so what does Peter and the apostles do? Well, They start a school, uh, and that's what this is going to be. This is a school where these 12 apostles are going to be teaching these 3,000 new converts uh, what it means to be a Christian. When we get to Acts chapter 17, we're going to see Paul teaching a group of people called the Bereans. Uh, They're a church that has been established in Berea. And when Paul taught, the Bereans searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. Uh, we were just having Sunday school a little while ago, and, and I just thought it was really great. I was thinking about my message, and I was thinking about the Berean church, and I'm listening to George teach, and I'm looking at everybody looking through their Bibles and their or on their phone app or wherever it's on to see if the things that George was saying are true, right? This is, this is what a learning church does. This is what a knowing church does. Uh, a teacher teaches, and the people then search the scriptures themselves to see if, if what they're saying is true. And and that's a learning church. These apostles or these disciples were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're not half in. They're not semi-committed. These guys are all in. They're continually devoted. They want to learn from these apostles, and they want to learn what it means to be a Christian disciple have you ever met people in your life who seem to have just this encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible like uh, you could be going through any situation and they 're like, "Oh yeah i can I can give you a verse from uh, you know Philippians three or whatever People like that amaze me that they just uh, always on the tip of their tongue they have a verse for the specific situation that you are in uh, that 's an amazing thing to have uh, and uh, I think that, that that's wonderful, because what it does, it, it, it gives us a model to emulate. Pe- people who know the Bible like that, we want to be like that too. And, and so that's, that's one good thing about it. But one thing that, that we have to know about the Bible is that uh, Hebrews chapter 4 says it's living and active. Uh, and, and, and there's something new in it all the time for us. Uh, even if we know a verse cold, uh, even George teaching from John chapter seven. I don't know how many times I've read John chapter seven and and studied it myself, but there was new things in there today that I didn't know because the word is living and active and and that's what's happening as we study the Bible. Well, some of these Bible scholars who are so amazing, uh, we we might think they know everything there is to know, but you know, if, if you had a thousand lifetimes, you could not plumb the depths of all that the Bible has to teach. And so we continually study, we continually learn, and it doesn't matter how far on the road of discipleship you are, you can still be learning truths uh, from the Bible. And so even the most well-versed Bible scholar that you know still has so much more to learn. Uh, they're only just skimming the surface. And if that's true of the, of the best Bible scholar you know, how much more so uh, for these first century Jews who are just getting their toes in the water in terms of what it meant uh, to be a Christian. Uh, learning is a daunting task especially when you're trying to tackle the Bible. This is a massive book, which, of course, they didn't have then, but I'm talking about for our purposes. When we are thinking about learning the Bible, it's a big, thick book, and there's so much to learn. Uh, but, you know, when, when we're talking about learning the Bible, uh, learning the Bible is not a destination. Uh, it's a journey. Uh, and, and we learn day by day in the Bible. We're never going to finish the thing. And the rewards are so worth it along the way. We get a payoff all the time as we go through, as we study the Bible. Uh, the payoff uh, happens uh, for each little nugget of truth that we learn uh, as we think about studying the Bible. Remember when you first became a Christian and all the things that you were reading about were so new to you. When you, re- when you learned about uh, God's salvation, when you learned about grace, when you learned what the gospel was, uh, how incredible Uh, to know these things, you're receiving that payoff day by day uh, as you learn and as you study and as you experience the Christian life. When I was in law school, there was a payoff in learning. I mean, you, you want to learn, you're there to learn, but really the payoff is in passing your final examination and banking those credits toward graduation. You want to just chop off classes, you put them in the, in the need to take this class to have, I've taken that class uh, file, right? And, and we've, we knock those things out, and when we've, we've finished all the classes, we reach our destination, which is graduation. Uh, they teach you things in law school, but like most jobs, like most jobs you've had, they don't teach you anything you need. Uh, you learn when you get on the job, right? Uh, in any job, it's the same way. When you, when you get on the job, you learn uh, what it is that, that you actually need to know. Uh, the, 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 the Christian life is exactly the opposite. Uh, the destination is not on a piece of paper or a graduation from, a, from an institution. Uh, it's the journey that's all important because we're picking up and we're learning and we're growing in Christ every day. We never graduate from the school of discipleship, so we don't have to look down the road to the future, to some dim light at an end of a tunnel where where we hope that someday we'll graduate. We're not going to graduate. We're going to learn until the day we die. And we can know him better every day as we study, as we train, as we are mentored by people, and as we experience life ourselves. It's been said that a person who stops learning starts dying. And I think that is true. And I think it's true of a church also. A church should always be learning. And that's what the New Testament church was trying to do. Uh, The New New Testament church was a a knowing church. Uh, And it wasn't about head knowledge. It's head knowledge for the purpose of uh, having spiritual growth. The first century church was a knowing church, uh, which makes it a growing church. So let's look at that, how the church is growing. A spirit-filled church is growing. Uh, we see here that, uh, and let me just say, I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about spiritual growth that's going on here. Uh, Noah preached for a hundred something years and didn't add one number to his flock, right? Uh, You preach, God does the work. You are faithful to plant the seed and God either will make converts for you or he won't. But for the people that we have, uh, we need to be growing. And a spirit-filled church grows spiritually. In verse 42, we see that these apostles were continually devoting themselves not only to the teaching, but to fellowship. Uh, Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And it means to be in close association, close relationship uh, with other people around something that binds them together. And, And what is it that binds them together here? It's the Holy Spirit, right? This is what they have in common. And so these folks are meeting together, they're gathering together, they're talking about fellowship in the Spirit, and it's the kind of fellowship that only believers can have with each other because only believers share in this gift of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't enjoy this kind of fellowship that we're talking about here. And because they had this kind of fellowship, uh, they wanted to be together, and so they get together for the breaking of bread, and they get together for prayer. Uh, the breaking of bread uh, certainly refers to the Lord's supper, but it also refers to just being together, hanging out together, having meals together, and and getting to know each other and sharing in each other's experiences and 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 trying to to walk this road of discipleship together, uh, as Christians, and as church members. Uh, and as members of Grace Redeemer, we ought to be seeking this kind of fellowship as well. And and one thing about this group, I know, is that we all like to hang out together. Uh, we love to eat, which is a really cool thing. We get together, we hang out, we eat, we tell our stories, we get to know each other better. And, and there are so many blessings in that because uh, when we're together, we we can uh, we learn from each other. Uh, you may find people in this church who are further along on the road of discipleship than you are, and, and you can be a mentor to, to somebody. And... And you can, uh, or you can be uh, mentored by that person. And you can also find somebody who's not quite far along the road of discipleship as you are, and you can mentor that person. Uh, We share uh, in our salvation and we rejoice in it uh, we, we rejoice in our common experiences. We, we share our sufferings together. We pray for each other when, when something might not be going quite so well for another member of the body. And, and we worship God, and God shows us his power, and he shows us his will, and he gives us spiritual discernment as we gather together and we pray together. God wants us to have this kind of koinonia, this kind of fellowship, because uh, it makes for spiritually healthy people. And spiritually healthy people make for spiritually healthy churches. We can build each other up, and then we can go outside these walls and help people who need our help as well. When these people were not rejoicing or fellowshipping together, they were together in prayer. Uh, What do you think they were praying for? I think they were thanking God for their common salvation. I think they were praying for friends and family to receive the Spirit as well. Uh, I think that they were praising God for his mercy and grace and asking for God's will and direction uh, in their lives. Lord, we're Christians. We've been Christians for an hour. What do we do next? They're praying for will and direction and and hoping God will set them on a course that will uh, be impactful to the rest of the world. You know, when we pray to God in a group setting, I think it's very powerful and impactful uh, I don't know if, uh, if you guys felt it uh, just before we moved into this building, we did that directed prayer. Uh, and I thought that was a really meaningful uh, and powerful thing that we did, where we, we got up and we, we just stood as a, as a body and prayed for our country and for each other and for our church and for the church universal. Uh, I thought it was a very powerful thing, and I'd like to do more of that in the future. It emphasizes our complete and mutual uh, dependence on God. It acknowledges uh, who God is Uh, and who we are, and that we can't do anything uh, apart from him. And so a prayer is a vital component of what we do here at Grace Redeemer Church. And it's going to be a vital component of of, uh, what any church that wants to grow does. Because if you are not connected to God, you can't grow. And that's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me, you can do what? nothing. You can do nothing apart from me. And so this first century church is tethered to Jesus uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're tethered to each other by the power of the Holy Spirit, enjoying this vertical relationship with God, uh, bound together with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then bound to each other uh, by this Holy Spirit that unites them. Well, We see that this this early church was growing spiritually. But we might ask the question, uh, how can you know? How do we know if we are growing spiritually? And so I want to talk about some of the marks of a spiritually growing church. And we'll see that as we progress here. Uh, One mark of a spiritually growing church is reverence uh, before God. Uh, It says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. The Greek says every soul Kept feeling a sense of awe. And so they're talking about everybody who saw these miracles and signs that these apostles were doing. That's believers and that's unbelievers alike. These apostles were performing miracles and they were performing wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit that verified to believers and to unbelievers alike uh, that the the words uh, that they were saying were true. The words were proved by these tangible, visible signs and manifestations that people could actually see. You know, when we go to the doctor, uh, we wanna see the diplomas on the wall, right? We we love to see all the diplomas and and we wanna see the white coat and we wanna see the stethoscope and we wanna see all these marks that show that this person is a doctor who has the ability uh, to cure our disease or to fix whatever is ailing us. Uh, we don't want to be sitting in that room uh, stripped down to nothing but a hospital gown and have some guy in gym shorts come in and say, I'm not a doctor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, right? That's, that's not what we want. We want a guy who authenticates who he is by these signs, the diplomas on the walls and the, the coat and the stethoscope and everything else. And, and that's what these apostles were doing. God was authenticating and verifying who they were uh, through the signs that he was performing. And then that verifies the faith to believers uh, and unbelievers alike. And so uh, these unbelievers are the people who the Lord was adding to the church every day. Uh, And the believers were having their faith verified by watching these signs and wonders that they were doing. Well, it says here in verse 43 that all of them felt a sense of awe and reverence for the Lord. And I wonder uh, in some of our churches if that's something that isn't missing uh, from our churches these days. Um, We are so well-versed in the Bible, and we have heard all these biblical stories, you know, the the Red Sea was parted, and Moses and the Israelites went through. We've heard that so many times that I wonder if we've been desensitized to it almost, uh, that we are in danger of of what can be uh, known as the trap of familiarity, I read a book by uh, Paul David Tripp. I've actually read it several times. It's a great book called uh, Dangerous Calling. And he has a whole chapter uh, dedicated to this uh, lack of awe, lack of reverence of God, what what he calls the danger of familiarity with God. And so I want to read a quote uh, from the book for you. He says, The great danger lies in constant contact with divine things. What is the danger? It is that familiarity with the things of God will cause you to lose your sense of awe. You've spent so much time in scripture that its grand redemptive narrative with its expansive wisdom doesn't excite you anymore. You've spent so much time exegeting the atonement that you can stand at the foot of the cross with little weeping and scant rejoicing. You've spent so much time discipling others that you are no longer amazed at the reality of having been chosen to be a disciple of Christ, you spend so much time unta- unpacking the theology of Scripture that you've forgotten that its end game is personal holiness. It's all become so regular and normal that it fails to move you anymore. Those are some convicting words, aren't they? Has God become familiar to us in such a way uh, that, that, that we don't even find Him awesome anymore? I, I think that that is a very real danger. You know, if you ever watch an animal show, uh, you could be watching a show about a gazelle or a wildebeest or whatever you might be watching, and, and you notice that these guys are on high alert all the time, right? They might look down for, to get a bite of grass, and then they're, they're looking up, and they're looking around, and they want to know if the lion's coming. If they let their guard down for one second, even one second, it could cost them their lives. The lion pounces. They are constantly aware. And I think we need to be the same with regard to God. We need to be ever vigilant to understand uh, and acknowledge who he is, his holiness, uh, and, and that he's God. He's, he's not your bud. He's not your bro. He's God, right? We can't, we can't look at God like that. We have to have reverence and awe uh, of God. Uh, some biblical examples of guys who failed to do that. Remember Moses' two sons in Leviticus chapter 10? They brought strange fire before the Lord and worshiped him in a way that that was not authorized by God, and God struck them down immediately. Do you remember Uzzah from 2 Samuel chapter 6? He was the guy who uh, the the ark was being carried on an ox cart, and uh, the ox cart uh, jingled or juggled, and and, uh, he thought it was going to fall to the ground, so he reached out his hands. To steady the ark so it wouldn't fall to the ground. And God struck him down immediately for his irreverence. Does that seem unfair to you? He was trying to save the ark. God says no one can touch the ark. Not even the Levites could touch the ark. They had to carry it on poles. And Uzzah was not a Levite. And so God strikes him down for his irreverence. The holiness of God uh, is greater than whatever our sense of fairness may be. How about King Uzziah? He thought that it would be a good idea to go and burn incense in the house of the Lord. Now, King Uzziah is a king, obviously. Burning uh, burning incense in the temple is a function that's reserved only for priests. And so uh, Uzziah, I guess, was feeling full of himself, and he decided he was going to go into that temple and he was going to burn incense. And the priests tried to stop him, uh, and he did it anyway. And what happened to him? He immediately turned into a leper, and he remained a leper for all the days of his life. And then finally, uh, how about Isaiah? Remember when he sees this vision of the Lord in heaven and, and he, he, he collapses practically and he says, uh, uh, oh Lord, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Uh, the Hebrew text actually uh, says, uh, literally, he fell apart as if he melted to the ground uh, in view of God's holiness. Um, I pray that God never becomes so familiar to us that we lose this sense of awe, this sense of reverence when we think about God and what he has done. Our reverence of God should increase, uh, not decrease, as we think about who he is and as we get to know him better and as we walk uh, this road of discipleship. So one mark of a spiritually growing church is reverence. Are, Are we increasing in our reverence of God? Another mark of a spiritually growing church is that our generosity should increase, Look at verses 44 and 45. Uh, All of a sudden, these church members cared less about themselves and more about everyone else around them, right? A selfishness is is an inherent human trait, right? We're, We're all selfish to some degree, but these guys, they put self aside and they wanted to give to others. And it's apparent that they had already learned a couple of valuable lessons from the apostles' teaching. Because Jesus loved them, they could go out and love others. And because Jesus is able to give to them, they can go out and give to others. Uh, we're to share our material goods with those in need. It all belongs to God anyway, so we can give away whatever He gives to us, knowing that He's able to replenish. Uh, it's been said that God can't put anything into a closed fist, right? If you're holding your material possessions so tightly, how's God going to put anything in that? You'll. Open your hand, you let ma- your material possessions go, and then God can pour liberally into your hands. And I'm sure that many of you have seen that in your own lives where you thought, I don't know if I can afford to give this away. I'm going to give here, and, and it might hurt. And then God does something incredible, but God, right? He comes and He does something more than we could possibly ask or imagine. <laughs> and so God is able to do that. Uh, if you've ever been around a two year old, you know that their favorite words are no and mine. mine. That's right. No and mine. Uh, They're not into sharing. They're not into sharing at all. They have to be taught that. And, you know, we're uh, older than two, most of us, and we all have to be taught sharing. We're not so good at sharing. That's not typically in our DNA. But this first century church was all about sharing. Uh, They're giving up their property and they're giving up their possessions. and, And when they didn't have enough, what did they do? They sold their property. They sold their possessions and they were giving it to those in need. And that's what we would call giving until it hurts. When Jesus saw a poor widow putting two copper coins into the temple treasury, here's what he said. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So two copper coins is, uh, in terms of strict quantity, it's less than what these other folks were putting in. But because it was all she had to live on and they were giving out of their surplus, she was actually giving more. That's extreme generosity. That's extreme and deep trust in God to provide. This new church was extravagantly generous. So a question for us to ponder, does this apply to us? Are we supposed to sell our houses? Are we supposed to sell our cars? Are we supposed to sell everything that we have and give to the poor? It sounds like communism, doesn't it? The difference is, is that in the first century church, this giving was voluntary and it was occasional. They were giving as people had need, and it was not done by government mandate. It wasn't required to be done. Uh, This giving was done out of love and not out of compulsion. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the poor, does it? Uh, Our giving should be just like the first century church was. We're not obligated to sell everything that we have and give to the poor. Yet at the same time, if we're not concerned about the poor, if we're not giving to the church, uh, it reflects an issue in our own hearts. God is concerned for the poor. He says so over and over uh, in his word. And so if God is concerned for the poor, we ought to be concerned for the poor and give generously as well. God loves a cheerful giver, and he loved the giving that this first century church was doing. So two marks of a spiritually growing church, reverence and generosity. And here's a third one, unity. Notice the attitudes of these people in verse 46. Uh, they were of one mind. This is that Greek word we've talked about a few times already that keeps popping up in Acts. It's hamathumadon. And it means that they are uh, were of one mind uh, towards something. And here they're of one mind towards fellowship with each other and going out and spreading the news to others. Uh, they were They were in fellowship with each other and they're growing in the Lord. And secondly, they're growing in generosity uh, and in love for each other. And they ate together with joy and sincerity of heart. When you read these verses, uh, a sub-theme of all of this is the joy that you read in this first century church. The joy is just overflowing. They're so happy. They're so thrilled with their salvation that they they can't wait to go out and share this with the world. And it's so amazing uh, when you you find people who love the Lord and who live for the Lord only and, and put the Lord first. So much of what divides people just falls away, right? These are human concerns. These are human divisions. God doesn't look at us that way. God looks at us all as his children. And so there should not be divisions among us. Um, Nobody cared there who was rich and who was poor, who owned a house, who didn't own a house, who was selling their material goods and who was receiving the gift. They were all of one mind. Uh, People weren't worried or concerned that there wasn't gonna be enough left for themselves if they sold their stuff because they knew that God could provide because of their vertical relationship with God. They, they loved God. They knew who God was. They understood Jesus's sacrifice. And so they trusted God. And when you have that kind of vertical relationship with God, it's so much easier to have horizontal relationships with other people because God loves them too. And God's love pours into us, through us, and out of us to others. It's an outstanding model for us. <clears throat> we can't love the Lord and be self-focused and self-absorbed at the same time. We should be so God-soaked and God-saturated and God-filled that we can't fit any more God in ourselves, and it has to pour out and spill out uh, over to us and and onto others. It reminds me of the old Wendy's uh, Where's the Beef advertising uh, campaign. You remember this from the 80s? Uh, This is what uh, people who are not generous look like, who are not filled look like. You have this gigantic bun, and you have this little hockey-sized piece of beef on that bun, and and the little old lady who's so cute used to yell on the phone there, where's the beef, remember that? Well, she's saying, where is the beef? And then they cut away from this picture, and they show the Wendy's hamburger, and the, the meat is spilling out over the bun so much that the bun can't even hold the burger. And that's what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to look like the bun that can't hold the burger and the, and the, the love of God is just spilling out over into others. When we're overstuffed uh, with God's love like that, our generosity uh, will overflow to others. We'll be so attractive uh, to others that, that people will flock to us like kids running to an ice cream truck. They will wanna to get to us uh, and be with us. So the Spirit-filled church, it's reverent, it's generous, uh, and it's united. And when you have these marks, those are the marks that that show that a church is spiritually growing. And a church that is spiritually growing is also going to be going. So a church is knowing, it's growing, and it's going. We see this in verses 46 and 47. Verse 46 says that they were going from house to house uh, preaching the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead so that if they believe, they can have eternal life. Verse 47 says that the Lord was then adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. And so what you have here is is people believing and and God adding them to the church. And if the church was going to grow, it was going to grow not only spiritually within the body, uh, it had to grow from outside uh, with, with unbelievers becoming believers. And so you disciple believers in the church, you evangelize unbelievers outside the church. And that's what this first century church was doing. Uh, if these people were all believers already, there would be nobody to add to their numbers. So we see that they're going from house to house, talking to believers and unbelievers as well. Uh, Cat Stevens used to sing a song called, I Can't Keep It In. I don't know if some of you know this back from the 70s. I can't keep it in. I can't keep it in. I got to let it out. I've got to show the world. World's got to see. See all the love, the love that's in me. And that's what this first century church was experiencing. They were so full of love, it was overflowing out of them so that they would share not only with believers, but they're going to unbelievers and they want unbelievers to know uh, the love of God. They're sharing their meals. They're sharing the gospel. They're being attractive to others so that others would be uh, drawn to their message. And if these things are happening among us here at Grace Redeemer Church, we're going to we're going to have a vital church. We're going to be filled with vitality. We're going to be attractive to others, uh, and people are going to not be able to resist us. So what are the marks of a church that is spiritually alive? The first mark is that we need to be a knowing church. We have to learn the truth from the Bible. Uh, Do a Bible study plan. The, The Bible is a big book, but you can read it in a year in just 15 minutes a day. So get on a Bible reading program Uh, come to the women's Bible study, come to the men's Bible study, uh, commit yourself to learning. I would have nothing of value to share with you on Sunday morning if I hadn't spent my week in the Bible trying to mine its truths and uh, praying to the Holy Spirit that he would show us how to apply these things to our lives. You know, the world is filled with opinion and editorial and commentary, and we don't need opinion, editorial, and commentary on Sunday morning. We need the truth. We need the Bible. We need to know it. And we need to test all things against the Bible. We need to learn what it says and we need to discern uh, what is true and what is false. And you need to hold me accountable if I say something that doesn't quite ring true. We need to be a knowing church. And then we need to share what we have learned. We need to be a growing church. Our goal is knowledge for the purpose of becoming more Christ-like, not for head knowledge. There are disciples who are on day one of their journey, And then there are disciples who are 50-plus years into their journey. And each one will tell you that there are mistakes and there are failures, spiritual failures and spiritual victories all along the way. And, And the longer we walk this walk, there will be more spiritual victories and less spiritual failures. But we're still going to fail from time to time. And when we do, there is always, always grace. There's always grace for us because God loves us like he does. We're never going to be perfect, but stay on the road of discipleship. Find a mentor, be a mentor. Uh, You will grow and you will help someone else grow as well. Can you guess the last one? (laughs) We need to be a going church. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, the world is only going to know if we go out and tell the world this good news. We don't have to go around the world. We can tell our friends. We can tell our family. We can tell our co-workers. Let me ask you a convicting question. Have you witnessed to anybody this week? Have you witnessed to anybody this month? Have you witnessed to anybody this year? I don't say this to you to give you a beat down as you leave the building today. I say this to convict us, to convict me. Uh, are we sharing the gospel like we should? Are we going like, uh, like the first century church did? Uh, I think that, that we are good in this church. I think we're really good at knowing and growing. I wonder about going, uh, myself included. Are we going like we ought to, like we ought to go? That's why I'm interested in your ideas about outreach, about how we can reach this neighborhood. I want to hear all your ideas, and let's figure out how we're going to go beyond these walls, beyond Sunday morning, and reach the people who need to hear the good news. I pray that we have the courage to be a going church, and I pray that we would tell people the good news and demand a response. Uh, God's part is in making people repent and believe. Our part is simply to go. And when we look like the first century church, not only will we have a message that the world needs to hear, we're going to have a message that the world wants to hear. So let's look like this uh, this first century church and we're going to be so attractive that we are going to draw people to us and we're going to make converts. Let's pray. Dear Lord learning is a daunting task. Trying to comprehend who you are, Lord, is a daunting task. In fact, uh, you give us glimpses into who you are, but we will never fully understand who you are and what you've done. Uh, Maybe even when we see you face-to-face, Lord, and, and we look forward to that day, but for the time that we are here, help us, Lord, to be a church that is so eager to learn, so eager to know you, to be a knowing church, uh, that that our knowledge will cause us to know you better, and that will cause us to be a growing church, Lord. Not necessarily numerically, we hope numerically, but certainly spiritually, that's what we want, Lord. We're looking for spiritual growth. We're looking for uh, us to follow Christ on the road of discipleship, uh, wherever that might lead, Lord. And then, Lord, help us to be a going church. We're we're a church that wants to do outreach. We know that you gave us this building, not so that we would have a building, but so that we would have a place to do ministry from and so that we could reach lost people in this new location. Lord, give us ideas, direct us, guide us, show us what you would have us do. Uh, Let us be your hands and feet. Show us where you are working, Lord, and help us to join you there. We want to reach the community. We want to reach the world with the gospel, Lord. It's our work to do, to spread the seed. It's your work to make people repent and believe. And we pray that we would do that in Christ's name. Amen.